listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's jdp one zero and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, show your support to Baron Fig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today in the show, we have Katie Talati. Katie is Vice President of Research at ARCA, where she leads the investment research team. There, she's responsible for identifying and analyzing digital asset and blockchain opportunities, macroeconomic factors, and other investment vehicles for ARCA's family of hedge funds. She has a broad investment background, previously serving as an independent consultant to startups in the financial services and fintech space, and she was previously an investment analyst at CrowdFunder. She holds a bachelor's degree in communications from UCLA. Enjoy my conversation with Katie Talati. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Well, it's great to have you here. So the first question, as listeners know, we like to start off with is going back to 2008. Help us frame the conversation and talk a little bit about uh, how the 08 crisis affected you. Sure. So, um... I was definitely on the younger side in 2008. I wasn't working at this point in my career, but it definitely did affect my family. Um, my mom is actually uh, a real estate agent. So that was kind of the end of her job for a couple years. Um, and at the time, I was also uh, you know, thinking about college and applying for school. 
and trying to understand uh, as a young adult, like what I wanted to spend my life doing. That year for college became incredibly competitive because of the recession. You know, a lot of options for myself and for friends uh, were kind of whittled down just, you know, because of the sheer number of people looking to return to school. And, um, and then, you know, beyond that for several years, you know, the, uh, kind of the job landscape really changed, um, post 08 and it really kind of, I think shaped what I ended up, uh, you know, studying and thinking about what I wanted to pursue as a career. Uh, I actually, at one point thought I would do journalism, but, uh, as we all know, I think that, uh, you know, 2008 was probably the start of the serious decline, um, for, you know, uh, print media. Um, and so that, you know, I kind of ended up getting st- uh, steered in a different direction as a result of that. Interesting. Yeah, there's been some journalists who've crossed over into certain research roles into finance and even some people who worked in research and then they got sick of finance or kind of working in that type of role and transitioned over to journalism or writing books and different things like that. So that's interesting. And we'll get into your background as it pertains to that. But tell us a little bit about after college and where your background uh, took you up to now. Sure. So uh, kind of the bulk of my experience pre-crypto, I have uh, been working in Los Angeles where I'm based and where Arca, my current company is based. Uh, and really my entire career is actually, I would say we in the, it's been in the uh, startup and early stage uh, company space. Specifically, um, I spend a bulk of my time at this company called Crowdfunder. Um, basically, they were an online platform for investors to um, connect with early stage companies to find investments. So from like right out of college, I was just um, exposed to all types of different early stage technologies, um, to the idea of, you know, kind of investing in early stage businesses. Uh, and it, it really ran the gambit. I mean, it was everything from, you know, it was retail, it was uh, it was B2B enterprises. It was payments. It, it, there were so many different types of um, kind of startups that it just blew my mind. And so I really started to get immersed in the this early stage technology space and super interested in it. Um, the company specifically did focus on kind of more fin, uh, financial technology type companies. So that's where I started to learn, you know, first about Bitcoin. I think the first couple of crypto companies I actually saw were uh, like digital wallets. Um, they weren't, you know, anything compared to the types of projects that we see today. And this was probably like five or six years ago. So I uh, definitely, you know, was kind of looking at the space fairly early. Not something I kind of took that I thought was going to explode in the same way it did at the time, just because there was really only Bitcoin. And then, like I said, there were like three companies that had a wallet for Bitcoin. And I was like, okay, cool. What can we do with this? But yeah, so really from there, like I said, I kind of had, I, I was really uh, given the chance to work with all kinds of uh, these companies. They're, they also had a venture capital fund, which I managed and worked with the various portfolio companies that were in there. So that is kind of how I have my VC investing background. Um, from there, I actually started consulting um, for a handful of projects in the LA area. A couple of them ended up being, uh, you know, companies in the digital asset space. It wasn't something I was actually looking to actively get into. I didn't know that much about it. Um, this was like in 2017. There was a lot of money in the space, obviously, and a lot of hype. Um, and I'm I'm very skeptical <laughs> of those types of things. So I kind of went into it with this skeptics lens, thinking, ah, oh, this. Uh, I don't know how seriously I can take this. I don't know if, you know, there's anything investable here. Um, and I, you know, as I started to kind of dig deeper into the space, I was really surprised at what I found. 
Um, and it was kind of along this consulting journey that I actually, uh, but I, I met the uh, founders of Arca um, on another project I was working on. And uh, when they offered me to join their team, I decided that they were probably the right team to execute in this digital asset space. And uh, that was about two years ago. Yeah, it's really interesting with your background, starting at the crowdfunding company and being able to see so many different projects come through there and get exposure there. And with the crowdfunding, it's interesting because there's also different business models as far as you have Kickstarter and Indiegogo, or sometimes you're like pre-funding a certain product. So it's kind of like a pre-sale of a product. And then you have different type platforms, which give you equity, kind of like a share in the company. And then I know there's all these different models. So let's transition and start talking a little bit about the digital asset landscape. Because as you said, at first, it was these companies doing, let's say, just a Bitcoin wallet, and then Ethereum came along. And then we saw this explosion of other tokens and different business models. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I never imagined that it would explode in such a way. To be fair, my understanding when I was first introduced to Bitcoin at the time of kind of what blockchain was and what it could kind of do uh, from a technology standpoint was super rudimentary. Um, it is obviously a very complicated area. So the more you dig into it, the more you do understand kind of that potential. Um, but yeah, I mean, the entire space has just completely changed. Like if you think about the fact that Five years ago, we really just had Bitcoin, maybe Ethereum, a couple wallets that were supporting things. Coinbase was around. Um, but you don't really have all of the different rich applications that people are building today and all the novel ways that people are applying blockchain technology to just everyday problems beyond uh, payments and currencies. Uh, and then in addition to you know, all these kind of novel approaches that we've seen from the project level, we're also seeing the infrastructure that has come up around digital assets. Uh, even just in the last two years, I've been blown away by, um, you know, the strides that the space has made, especially in, you know, servicing institutional investors, servicing retail investors, working on education. Uh, I still think we have a long way to go. But, um, you know, that has been kind of the biggest growth point is not just, okay, we have all these great projects, but also like we need an entire we need an entire infrastructure ecosystem to support these projects. Um, and we're slowly seeing that get there. I think there's still, like I said, a while to go, but uh, very, very, very interested on in how fast the space has moved and managed to kind of create something out of absolutely nothing in the last couple of years. Right. And you head up research at Orca, as you mentioned, and let's talk a little bit about your research process and how you kind of drill down into the space and looking at this, the different themes out there, let's start with just the decentralized finance. <laughs> okay, sure. So kind of at a high level, and then just to give you a very quick background on Arca, Arca is an uh, investment management company uh, based in the digital asset space. And uh, under that, we have kind of like a family of funds and different fund strategies investing across digital assets. Uh, so I head up research for that arm of our business, um, specifically looking into and evaluating digital assets uh, for our portfolio. In terms of the research process that we use, uh, it's definitely a unique one. It's not one that like equity analysts use or VC analysts use. Um, it's been one that's had, that we've been kind of developing uh, since I joined the team two years ago and something that's constantly iterated on. Uh, I can't stress that enough. Uh, things are always changing in this ecosystem and you kind of have to adapt with it. The uh, general process, though, that I that we use definitely comes 
it's kind of is loaned from the background that our team members bring. Uh, Arca's CIO is Wall Street veteran, huge capital markets expert. Um, uh, you know, and I bring, like I said, kind of this more VC type background. And so melding those two approaches, we kind of have this like blend, I want to say this blended research process. The And if you're ever interested, by the way, the research process is available on Arca's blog on our website, ar.ca. But uh, we basically analyze investments using a bottom-up approach and kind of using like three uh, major sector, major uh, analyses. So the first is we look at um, kind of the market and the valuation of these assets. So uh, obviously crypto valuation is still super, it's very much in its infancy. And there's a lot of different, you know, methodologies that are being tested out and tried. Uh, some are more, some are, you know, not that successful. Uh, some have been adapted from the traditional world. I think we have yet to see one that's super successful. But we do try to use these valuations to just give us an idea um, of kind of how we would think about valuing an asset and less so we can say, okay, I think you should buy it at this price and sell it at this price. Um, it's really meant to be like a guide. Uh, so we kind of look at the value or we look at if there's a way to value it. And then if we can, you know, we're constantly looking at those like valuation metrics. And then in addition, we also look at, like I said, the market, you know, where, where does it trade? Uh, how often does it trade? You know, where, what's the availability of it? Because that dictates uh, other pieces of the investment, including the sizing and kind of the risk reward. Uh, the second piece that we look at is obviously the technology. Uh, we look at, you know, asking what is the product market fit for this technology? Is there actually a technology that exists or is this a pre-launched product? We look at, we I, a big thing we do is, you know, usability. A lot of applications in the crypto space are not that user-friendly and there are issues such as latency. If you're, you know, trying to play a game on Ethereum and you have to wait three seconds for the blockchain to confirm, you know, <laughs> to send through your transaction, that's a terrible user experience. You think that the game is broken, your internet connection went down. So uh, those are, that's like a major kind of sticking point for us is, uh, you know, ensuring that this is going to be something that is user-friendly because that's what's going to drive adoption. You know, if you send somebody to try out like a fun game or try a new wallet, but it's like so impossible to set up or use, that person is just going to say, eh, I don't really want to do this. And they'll walk away and they'll never come back. So I think it's really important to focus on that aspect of the technology um, and then diving deeper, obviously, you know, we're looking at the code, we're looking at, you know, especially if it's kind of still in the theoretical stages, uh, would this actually work in practice? You know, are these, you know, is this type of system that you've laid out, uh, say in a white paper, feasible? So then the third piece we look at is kind of what we call like our business analysis. And that really, uh, you know, I guess it it varies, you know, sometimes we have these decentralized projects. And sometimes, uh, you know, these projects have an actual company backing them. That's a little more structured. So we look at what is kind of behind the technology in that sense, and who's really running the show. And that uh, that's kind of where more of like the VC investing part comes in, evaluating the team, their background, uh, looking at what other you know investors have you know backed the company or backed the project, and trying to understand also kind of what is the structure of the token within the uh, project, you know, like you kind of mentioned, is it a security token? Is it a utility token? Is it just for payments? Uh, kind of how that works. And then also just some basics about 
what is the what are the metrics around the supply of the token? Is it a deflationary asset, inflationary? Kind of understanding the just the overall model of the business, right? If there's an additional revenue model on top of it, how they're funding themselves, are they planning to decentralize in the future and step away? Or do they plan on, you know, kind of handholding the project through its entire life? So uh, we, we kind of look at that to evaluate just how strong we think the business is and then how you know successful we think the project can be based on that. So taking those all together, you know, not every project necessarily can be evaluated in that lens. As I mentioned, sometimes we can't value um, any of the crypto assets using traditional methods. Uh, you know, other times the project is not doesn't have, you know, kind of as much technology as another project does. For example, the technology backing an exchange token, which is usually just an, ex, you know, an ERC-20 representation, uh, is not going to be as complicated as looking at the technology underlying a decentralized finance lending protocol, for example. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's great how you have different people from different backgrounds coming together at the firm, as you mentioned, you having a little more background on the VC side and others on the capital market side, because as many people know, with digital assets and many of these companies, it requires a lot of different people to come together from different backgrounds. So you have you know, computer scientists, you have financial analysts, traders, as you mentioned, angel investors and kind of uh, people working in VC, actually investing in like the very, very early companies. So that kind of makes a lot of sense from a, a research standpoint. Now, diving in a little bit more to some of the themes. So as I mentioned, the decentralized finance has been kind of a hot buzzword and uh, kind of a theme that investors have been looking at more recently. And then you have gaming and some of these other things. So let's first dive into the decentralized finance. Um, and I think a good place to start there is just talking a little bit first about Bitcoin versus Ethereum and the pros and cons of both. And then, you know, transition into uh, the DeFi topic uh, based on the Ethereum chain and others. Sure. So, I mean, I guess at a high level, uh, Bitcoin is, you know, kind of yeah, right now it's like what it represents 70% of all, you know, the digital asset space. It was the first true cryptocurrency. It was born out of, um, you know, 2008, the great recession, um, the great recession. Um, and it was really, you know, built to be this truly decentralized, immutable, unhackable system. Uh, and it's held up for over 11 years. And I don't think enough people kind of outside the digital asset space necessarily uh, understand the power of that. You know, the more I've kind of uh, spent time in the space learning about Bitcoin, learning about blockchain technology, I've just been amazed that, you know, what Bitcoin kind of has accomplished um, and what I, like I said, kind of the infrastructure that's sprung up around it almost overnight. I really think that, you know, kind of given the macro picture that we have right now with, uh, you know, the Fed, uh, you know, basically printing money with Congress, you know, passing stimulus package after stimulus package. I think the idea of a fixed supply um, currency that, you know, is outside of government control is incredibly important. And, you know, maybe not the rest of the world may not understand that today. But I think five, 10 years from now, um, you know, the necessity of having that type of asset 
is going to be even greater than it is right now. But obviously, like Bitcoin, for those of you that don't know, does have its limitations. The biggest one being just because it is such a decentralized project and because it does want to kind of include as many people in its system, quote unquote, as possible. It doesn't have what's called like a strong uh, governance feature. And it is kind of prioritized the security of the network over having many additional features. Uh, so what that kind of means is that, uh, at least from my my take on things, is that Bitcoin has, you know, Bitcoin is, you know, really great. But I think for it to be anything beyond a payment system, uh, I, I really don't see it getting there simply because, um, like I said, the people who kind of work on the Bitcoin core, the code, are you know, very slow to kind of adapt changes, um, which is not a bad thing because their whole goal, like I said, is security and kind of inclusion of everybody in the network. Um, like I said, the trade-offs though are that, and, and that's where Ethereum kind of comes in, is that Ethereum was like, this technology is really, really interesting for, you know, sending and receiving payments, but is there something else that we can do? Can we build something else on top of this? Um, if you can have, uh, you know, this immutable code, for sending transactions back and forth, why can't you also have this immutable code for if then statements? If I do some, if I, uh, you know, if I give Ryan a loaf of bread, he has to pay me $5. Why can't we code that into, um, you know, a transaction? And that's kind of where the idea of smart contracts and where Ethereum really rose up from. And that was like really the building block that has allowed a lot of these crypto projects to flourish. And on top of that, build uh, these ever increasingly complicated um, applications based on these if then statements. Yeah, exactly. And when you're looking at some people bring up the question of, okay, it makes sense to have the smart contracts. And like you said, it makes sense to kind of uh, build on top of kind of what Bitcoin already created and having this other platform that you know, maybe it even ties back to the Bitcoin chain or does through a hash or some type of tieback to that really, really secure, just kind of dumb blockchain, like you said, really slow, uh, mm-hmm. inefficient as far as throughput, but great for uh, having security and being fully decentralized. So the question in a lot of people's minds is when you have something like Ethereum, I think, you know, there's two questions. First is, how do you view the trade-offs and benefits from using just a traditional database, like a SQL database or a non-SQL, like a MongoDB or something like that, that's controlled by, you know, maybe one person uh, or sorry, one company. And then when you look at the token piece, how do you look at whether the token is needed or valuable or not? So let's take the first one first. I think um, the trade-offs, so the biggest trade-off I can tell you between using Ethereum and uh, just like you kind of mentioned a closed blockchain type database, basically a fancy spreadsheet is what it ends up being, is that you're really prioritizing um, the idea of decentralization and transparency over uh, privacy and speed. So it usually depends on kind of the goals of what somebody is trying to accomplish with their project. Um, Ethereum is definitely much faster than Bitcoin. Uh, you know, confirmation time is a couple minutes instead of 10. But, uh, you know, that still can be too slow depending on the type of application that you're trying to run. 
in the sense of like what I guess I've seen, I know we've seen a lot of kind of enterprises say, oh yeah, we're going to adopt blockchain. And it ends up just being this fancy internal database. Um, again, it really just depends on what their goals are. A lot of enterprises today, their biggest issue with adopting something like an Ethereum for their supply chain management or for keeping records is um, the privacy issue. That's probably one of the bigger ones. So having uh, the ability to kind of mask the contents of a transaction, but being able to still see it confirmed publicly. So that's one kind of big problem that's being worked on in the space. And I know there's several solutions out there for it. That's usually one of the biggest pieces of pushback from uh, the biggest pieces of pushback from kind of enterprises or Fortune 500 companies when they're looking at adopting Ethereum. And then kind of the second thing I touched on is speed. So um, if you're maybe just storing like really basic records on a blockchain, probably doesn't matter as much. But if you're trying to have thousands and thousands of transactions running through your system at once, uh, a great example is um, say like a Visa or a MasterCard. I think they run something insane, like millions of transactions a second through their network. Um, If we don't have a public blockchain that can handle that, then these, you know, these large companies aren't going to come in and say, okay, yeah, we're going to adopt Ethereum over our own internal blockchain system that can run at these types of speeds and can keep up. Yeah. And we've seen different consortiums. So we saw R3 and a a bunch of other ones. Some of the large accounting consultants got involved at uh, price. EY. PwC, EY, exactly. And then and then we've seen that kind of on the open blockchain side. So you look at something like EOS or you look at something where maybe there's 10 or 15 or 20 different validators. So it's almost a hybrid system of saying, okay, we want something with more throughput. We want the benefits of something more like a traditional database, but we still want to have some benefits on the decentralization side where maybe there's um, 20 validators or something like that. And then, of course, that would be good for something like gaming where you're having these skins or in these swords and different kind of mm-hmm. in-game things where maybe you don't want just one company to control that. Maybe, you know, maybe it makes sense for a consortium to, to actually control that. So how, do you, how are you view- viewing those consortium type databases? I guess the open ones and the closed ones. Um, I guess it kind of depends. You know, R3, I think their their main goal is really to just bring the idea of blockchain to each of these Fortune 500 companies. At least that is my take on it. But, you know, that, that, that is kind of their goal. Um, and I think it's kind of the idea of just getting people there incrementally, right? So not necessarily, uh, you know, running into a board meeting and saying, okay, you got to like build everything on Ethereum, um, and then that's the, the end game. But I think kind of just saying, okay, I think you need to consider incorporating blockchain into your business. Okay. We understand, you know, blockchain doesn't always have, um, you know, the, it's, it's not, it's not, we're, we're not saying to build on Bitcoin or build on Ethereum, but why don't you build on something that looks like Ethereum, but it's closed just to you for a lot of, uh, businesses. That's a little easier to stomach when they're trying to kind of adopt a new technology than just going kind of zero to 100. Uh, and I think that is probably the best approach right now, especially with, you know, these businesses like this, this large, they're just very slow to move as well. And I think because all of us work in the digital asset space and we're all essentially at what are considered startup companies, we're just in the mindset of we can move as fast as possible and we can break things along the way. We can keep going. We can keep iterating. 
And in reality, if you've got a, you know, multi-billion dollar company with offices worldwide and tons of employees, that's just not going to happen. I do applaud though, you know, the groups, like I think it's EY, um, Ernst and Young, they, uh, they have actually built, uh, they're, they're trying to get uh, enterprises to use Ethereum, but they have like a platform in between that basically allows them to deploy, um, you know, a, to use the Ethereum blockchain, but, you know, they're trying to figure out ways to like mask transaction, you know, or not transaction data mask kind of what would go into those transactions, um, and just have it confirming on the blockchain and using using the Ethereum technology and the benefits of decentral its decentralization without uh, completely without kind of like opening everything up to the public in that sense. So uh, I think there are some others that are taking that incremental approach. Um, the the kind of the argument for using a public blockchain or having a more you know like I said kind of using part of a public blockchain versus just using your own internal database is that the way that a lot of systems are set up today, um, people use the analogy of like their different silos. And so trying to, if you're really trying to like promote uh, information sharing, data sharing, open systems, it's not going to work if everybody has their own blockchain database and they're just running information within those blockchain databases. And then none of the other databases talk to each other. Um, Mm -hmm. That's really the benefit of, having some sort of open blockchain system that a lot of businesses are building on because then it means across different suppliers, they can talk about, Oh, you know, even now with COVID, um, Oh, you have a bunch of surgical masks here. We need surgical masks here. Great. Let's make this happen. Um, but you know, a lot of those, a lot of that information is like I said, very siloed off within these different businesses. And so people don't, uh, supply chains are like the biggest one that suffer from this because it's, you know, there's vendors and then there's the suppliers and then there's like the, you know, people who are working on the contracts and shipping in between. And so the idea of opening up those systems so they can freely communicate, uh, should, you know, reduce friction, um, you know, increase kind of delivery times and, uh, you know, just reduce overall, um, overhead costs. So that's kind of, I guess, I would say what the benefit would be of, you know, eventually going to these open blockchain systems versus uh, the closed off traditional databases. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One thing that people don't kind of look at or recognize as far as naysayers who are looking at something like Ethereum or maybe EOS where it's a lot more centralized than Bitcoin. And there's a lot of differences as we talked about where you can't actually build on top of Bitcoin. In many cases, there's like op codes and things that are disabled for a reason. And it's supposed to be like that. But when you look at these other platforms, comparing them to a traditional database, or even a consortium, I think the main key is that it's the open access. So anyone can create a wallet, anyone can, you know, join the network and come and go at will. And that's one thing that's is a a benefit. And that is like one piece of decentralization, right? There's it's not fully decentralized, but you you have all these different flavors. So, you know, that kind of transitions into a conversation about DeFi, because the one choke point there is (laughs) where you have a centralized company that they need to KYC you, you know, they have to follow certain laws. And it's really difficult to build uh, some of these um, companies, let's say, that are fully decentralized, like they're still going to be, or at least right now, companies that are 
you know, regulated and maybe they're building the wallet to access the DeFi platform, but it's definitely a choke point. So how are you looking at the decentralized finance piece and what people are building there? Yeah. So um, like I kind of talked about before, what Ethereum brought that was so different um, was the idea of these if-then statement uh, contracts and uh, really decentralized finance, or some people call it open finance, is just the different applications that have been built using these if-then statements. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of kind of the pieces that have been built mirror a lot of what exists in the real world. Uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, there are a number of lending protocols. So your ability to loan out your Ethereum um, and earn an interest or a yield on that um, via these if-then statements. Uh, we have decentralized exchanges. So venues that you can go to. And as you mentioned, Ryan, you don't have to KYC or kind of sign up for an account. Um, you know, that exchange doesn't hold your assets. You're still in control of them, but you are essentially uh, entering your trades through a smart contract. Um I mean, there, there are so many pieces to DeFi, so I probably won't be able to touch on all of them just off the top of my head. But, you know, there's other pieces too, just like um, the uh, the payments piece or, uh, you know, the idea of using kind of derivative or synthetic assets that you can trade um, in this decentralized manner that mirror, uh, you know, real, real either digital assets or real, um, you know, uh, real, real assets. Um, outside the decentralized finance ecosystem. Uh, so we've gotten to this point where, I mean, DeFi exploded in the last year. Um, at the start, there was really only like one lending protocol, maybe two decentralized exchanges. And now we have, if you go to, there's a, if you're, if you don't know anything about DeFi, you can go to this uh, website called DeFiPulse.com and it ranks all the different uh, decentralized finance applications and how much uh, Ethereum is locked up in them. But we really have this very vibrant ecosystem now. And a lot of the, you know, kind of newer uh, items that have been launched in DeFi are aimed at actually doing things like reducing friction, bridging between some of the protocols um, that are in existence, and um, and just really kind of iterating on this idea of we have this open finance system that utilizes this novel technology, like what else can be built on it? Um, and so you really do see like I said, a lot of kind of not uh, interesting approaches to, uh, you know, providing liquidity um, in these decentralized exchange places to uh, allowing people to take out loans um, and, uh, you know, repay them or to, you know, get leverage on an asset. Uh, so you can go, you know, trade away elsewhere. Arbitrage opportunities have, you know, kind of come through this uh, avenue. So decentralized finance, I think it's super interesting. I think it really has illustrated the ways that um, Ethereum smart contract technology and blockchain uh, can be used in the real world to a certain extent. Um, I still do believe, though, that in its current form, it's very much limited to um, the current players in the digital asset ecosystem. Um, I'm really still waiting for something that's going to bring in new users to crypto, not just current users, uh, you know, playing around with the latest cool app. Yeah. And when you look at the Ethereum blockchain, so we talked about Bitcoin and the value proposition there makes sense of why it accrues value and, and will continue over time. Um, so, but when you're looking at Ethereum and other chains where they're trying to be kind of, some people compare uh, Bitcoin 
uh, to like the digital gold. And then Ethereum is like a oil or something like that, where you're actually using it to do transactions. And there's this concept of gas, spending gas on the network. How do you look at the value accrual with Ethereum? Because some people would say, okay, it makes sense to be able to have the token and use it on the platform, but you can just be able to jump in and out between, let's say, a stable coin backed by the US dollar or even Bitcoin. Like, What's the proposition for value accrual for, for the Ethereum network? would like my honest opinion. I actually don't think that, and, and by the way, the founder of Ethereum has stated this, um, you know, Ethereum's not meant to be a store of value the same way Bitcoin is. Um, it, it is not really meant to like accrue value in the way, um, that, uh, like kind of some other, you know, protocols or platforms, uh, have uh, that might change by the way, cause Ethereum is, you know, upgrading to 2.0, in the next couple of years and the token dynamics will change considerably. But, you know, really in its current form, as you mentioned, Ethereum is used to pay for gas fees to kind of run these applications. But if you are, you know, using Ethereum to just send stable coins back and forth as a payment method, and you're just using Ethereum to kind of, you know, pay for that gas and not to actually send that value back and forth, then it is really hard to make a case for its value accrual. Um, I know that there is, you know, kind of the long held thesis in digital assets that, um, you know, the value will accrue at this base level, unlike it did in the age of the internet era, right, where um, we had uh, H, uh, you know, all the uh, traditional internet protocols, like those ones didn't make any money, but it was like Google and Facebook and everybody who built on top of those internet protocols that made the money. Um, I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to that thesis completely. I think in some cases it can work, but I don't think it necessarily does in Ethereum's value. Um, <clears throat> I think that the value of Ethereum, um, you know, is driven by, it's, it's driven by a lot of different things, um, but I don't think it is really tied to its usage. Um, and I don't think that it's kind of currently set up to have uh, a value capture mechanism in the same way that, you know, Bitcoin does. Right. And when you're looking at the space as a whole, without talking about individual projects, but when you're looking at whether a token should exist and the usefulness of the token, let's talk a little bit about that because we've seen a lot of projects that are more similar to rewards points or airline miles, people like to say. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, those are still could be a use case, right? Like I've heard about people thinking about, okay, let's say Apple computer or Google, obviously there's, they're both active in the payment space. Um, but even doing something like a, a rewards program where, you know, they can just flip it on, on the phone, let's say, and then every time you, you make a purchase at the Apple store, then you'll get a discount or something. And then uh, that brings up the point of, okay, why not just use a, d- a database? But um, as we talked about, there are benefits for, for those tokens to be able to be freely traded and maybe maybe move around on different uh, companies and different platforms. So we saw uh, Libra, uh, the Facebook initiative to kind of bring in, I saw Spotify join that group and there are other companies. So I think 
people are already thinking about having like this ability between companies. Maybe it's not a full fungibility like Bitcoin has, obviously, where it would be something like gold, where it's like completely fungible. So going back to why we need why we need the token, how how do you view tokens in that sense as far as um, like rewards points versus something that would actually accrue value and and be tradable uh, and the network supporting that value? Yeah. So, I mean, going back to kind of Bitcoin, a lot of people, uh, you know, obviously compare it as a or compare it to gold, say it's a digital gold. You know, we haven't, in my opinion, come up with a really good valuation methodology for Bitcoin yet. I think it still has, you know, yet to be found. I I tell people when they're trying to kind of just understand it from, uh, just understand it from like kind of the base level point is that, um, you know, Bitcoin, because it's mined and the mining industry is like, uh, you know, very professionalized. There's giant groups that mine um, all across the globe. um, And it's a very uh, expensive business to get into, very expensive to keep running. there are kind of certain set costs to mine one Bitcoin, um, kind of what we call the mining floor. Um, mm-hmm. Can't remember what it currently is off the top of my head uh, now since we are post having, but uh, you know the idea basically is that uh, if Bitcoin gets below that mining floor, that means that the people who are securing the network aren't making any money, and so a lot of people are kind of give that to them as like you can think of this as like the bottom kind of the bottom price that Bitcoin can be worth. Um, now that's not to say you can dip below the mining floor because we have in the past, um, in the recent, I think I want to say it was probably back at the end of 2018 it happened, but, um, you know, it's definitely able to go below that, but I think that's a good kind of like, uh, floor or gives you kind of an idea of like a range, um, of where we could be. A lot of people also kind of, um, at least for crypto uh use kind of like a total addressable market to look at things like bitcoin and say okay like if gold has a three trillion dollar market cap and bitcoin only has you know uh i think what 180 billion market cap like yeah there that's the growth potential you have right there so that's kind of a lot of the like the value that people kind of try to ascribe to assets i think it's uh i think it's harder with um other kind of uh, digital assets or with other tokens. Um, You know, 2017 was uh, a time when initial coin offerings were popularized. So that was the idea where you could raise, uh, that was the idea where you could raise, you know, money online. You could issue a digital token before you would kind of like launch your project. And then that token would be used in your project at some later date. Uh, And obviously, you know, SEC ruling came out that those were essentially securities because there wasn't, you know, usually a network in existence. There wasn't a well-defined token use case. Um, And, you know, it was kind of like, it kind of hinged on the um, ability for that network to launch and have a use case for the token. Uh, So we've seen kind of like, I think varying, like some networks have managed to launch and have um, actual usage for their token and others have, uh, you know, have not. Um, but yeah, I mean, so sorry, going back to what you were talking about too, with the rewards theme, um, or the idea that tokens can be kind of these like reward, um, type loyalty points. I think that is a huge, um, kind of use case. Uh, that's definitely a theme that, you know, we've been looking at. Um, there's a lot of projects within the digital assets ecosystem that is kind of utilizing that idea of rewarding customers, um, with discounts or, you know, basically using it to, you know, kind of keep their attention, um, on, you know, 
a certain project. And I think those are the ones that have been uh, like very successful. And I think it sets up a really uh, potentially really successful model for other companies outside of crypto to follow. Uh, You know, we at ARCA talk a lot about like what will bring in that like next wave of adoption. And we keep saying it's going to be a traditional company that tokenizes um, and, you know, uses the power of digital assets to, um, you know, basically engage with their customers on a different level. Reddit just did it this last week. Uh, You know, I know it's uh, kind of small, but the idea of like issuing their community points as tokens uh, and as ways for, you know, their users to interact with um, with essentially the um, content that they produce. That is huge. Uh, so I think we're going to start to see more and more companies kind of um, kind of trying out these this uh, this technology and seeing how it can fit in. Um, I know that the idea of the um, kind of reward token rewards and um, not gift cards, but yeah, like token rewards is being uh, played around with with uh, backed, for example. Um, I know they've kind of you know mm-hmm. talked for a while about the potential to build customer loyalty through those types of programs and have it be like you said, kind of not just siloed for one business, but the ability for you to get rewards at Apple um, and get your rewards at Starbucks um, and, you know, kind of have that customer loyalty um, within one platform. So I think that is somewhere we will definitely see real growth, whether, um, you know, depending on how these tokens are kind of structured will dictate, I think, how um, they have any 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 value um, and whether they continue to kind of be these investable assets or if they're just kind of like a okay it's like a stablecoin they're pegged to the value of one U.S. dollar. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I just checked the backed website, and you're exactly right. They've kind of rebranded to doing this all-encompassing in-game uh, points rewards, and then they they talk about like having um, game points and all of these type of digital assets and things and grouping them into kind of one platform and one wallet. And as, as we talked about before, you know, the future still is yet to be written about, is this going to be a consortium between some big conglomerates or, you know, obviously there are certain companies that are trying to make it a winner take all. So backed is backed by uh, NYSE uh, owned by ice or ice NYSE, um, New York Stock Exchange, and then you had, like we we mentioned earlier, Facebook with the Libra co- Coalition. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, some of these big players that are. Um, that's always the challenge is <laughs> they want to work together and form these uh, partnerships and <laughs> consortiums, but they also want to own a lot of the IP. So I feel like it's a struggle too between even some of these large companies and regulators as well. Um, I remember the big theme and the the big kind of joke thing that people say is uh, quote unquote partnerships <laughs> going back to, you know, 2015, 2016, when that was, those were the big PR announcements, you know, but now, like, as you said, people are finally actually building things, which is, which is good for the space. So going along those lines, kind of that next overall theme is uh, kind of looking at gaming um, is an area that you're excited about as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, there's two reasons. The first is that um, there is the ability to actually kind of some of the things that happen in gaming today. Um, And then on top of that, you have to just also look at the demographic that is involved in gaming. Um, They're generally younger, uh, tech savvy. And so they're probably going to be the ones who are more willing to uh, learn about and accept and then adopt digital assets. Um, 
And I think it's also kind of an incremental way to start to introduce people to the idea of digital assets, to the idea of, oh, um, you're playing a game and you won, uh, you know, 50 of our tokens. You have to set up your wallet now to claim those. Oh, okay. Well, what's a wallet? Oh, you just, you know, you install this Chrome browser um, and, you know, make a password, but like keep it secret. So I think it's a really good way to get new users in um, and be what I call like an on-ramp. Um, you know, we we kind of talk about on-ramps in crypto as just a, a, like the ability, you know, for you to go to an exchange and give them, you know, money from your bank account and buy Bitcoin. Um, but really an on-ramp in my mind is anything that can just introduce people to digital assets without making them feel like, oh my gosh, this is a lot. Um, or feel like they're actually using, you know, using uh, the d- these digital assets in their very, um, uh, in their very, uh, like original form, I guess. Yeah, and I saw uh, Fortnite is a really popular game uh, with the younger crowd, and I've talked to a few of my friends who have <laughs> kids in that age range, and. I've heard about these V bucks that, you know, the kids buy mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, they, they'd rather have V bucks than, than dollars. Even if you're Venmoing them, um, you know, they, they kind of view that as that's the currency they want, or that's or the, whether it's, you're looking at it as rewards points or however you're looking at it. Um, you know, you can say from a broad view, it's just a, a value that they're, that they want. And that's a lot of it is what that's what they asked for, for a birthday or Christmas. And I'm, I'm looking here on the Microsoft website, you can buy it. They sell them, sell them for a thousand dollar packs for nine ninety nine, So for 10 bucks, and then you can you know, use this in-game currency. You mentioned Reddit earlier. So I know Reddit had the, the Reddit gold kind of platform, but you know, what, how do you foresee this kind of playing out as far as these, these companies with these offerings, do you see it playing out where they uh, make it more decentralized and try to um, have one unit that passes, you know, between, or maybe um, like, how do you see that playing out? So I really think it'll depend on the gaming companies themselves. Um, The, uh, you know, the, the, the bull case, I guess, for decentralizing, um, these in-game systems more so on the level of, uh, you know, you have V bucks at Fortnite, um, or you have, um, for example, like in-game items specifically, um, mm-hmm. that are kind of, you know, unique and the, those get traded as well. Um, the, uh, the, the advantages of having like a decentralized, or I would almost just say not even decentralized, but just a more open gaming s- system is the ability to trade between games and not just keep V bucks within the Fortnite ecosystem, but share it with, you know, any other major game outside of, you know, that gaming studios ecosystem, because from there you can really grow this vibrant, uh, you know, cross asset, uh, platform. And, and that's really why that's really kind of the argument for bringing at least these, uh, these digital assets that are creating to a open source blockchain community, because then you can have that ability for those assets to trade within games. Cause maybe you like, you know, a game at, from one gaming studio, maybe you like two games, right. And they're each from a different gaming studio, but if they use the same currency, you'd probably be sending it back and forth. And the, um, the benefit, by the way, for the game studios, they can just charge a transaction free every time you send money out of their game studio. Very simple as that or a deposit fee. Um, and it can be, you know, very small where people don't even notice, but that is kind of the benefit I would say of using like an open blockchain system for all of these, um, for the, all of these games to kind of operate on, um, with their tradable currencies and assets versus having them kind of closed off. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as you mentioned earlier, when you look at you know, people always talk about millennials and the that we have kind of the younger millennials and older mm-hmm. millennials and it's, that's the, been the buzzword, whether it's Time Magazine or Newsweek or any any article or mainstream publication, you, you can read hundreds and probably thousands of articles that have been written about preferences and people debunking those preferences later. And um, but, you know, so let, not so much millennials, but let's look and talk about to that next generation. I think it's uh, Gen Z where yeah. they're growing up, you know, completely digitally native where they're they grow up with an iPhone in their hand. They grow up uh, with, you know, with with iPads. And I remember when I was growing up, we, we had photos and those type of things. But your parents had to be pretty digitally savvy in order to go out and buy one of those real old school like VHS uh, tape recorder yeah. things and uh, to be able to have you know, like video. So I don't have any of that. But um uh, you know, we have photos, but if you think about now kids growing up, it's, I mean, imagine the amount of videos and just photos and just content and like live, like these kids are going to be able to watch themselves through like, you know, a 1080p video, which is kind of crazy, but going along just that digital, digitally native aspect of it, do you think people are underestimating that or do you, how do you think that's uh, playing out right now in the narrative? Well, I actually was going to say it kind of ties into what you know, is going on today more um, on a global setting. And I think that, uh, you know, especially Gen Z growing up today, they, I mean, their world is so different than the one that we knew. And the world, you know, honestly has been forever changed, I think, by, um, you know, the events of this year, COVID, um, you know, kind of the increasingly like kind of anti-globalization movement that we're seeing everywhere. Um, you know, the the recession that, is here and is going to probably stay, unfortunately, for quite a while, I think is really going to impact um, kind of how the uh, this generation, you know, this generation sees the world, how they invest, how they use different technologies. I think specifically because this generation has grown up so digitally native, getting them to adopt these technologies is really not that hard. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of what has gone on this year and what even went on 10 years ago has just sown so much distrust in the younger generations distrust in corporations, in the government, uh, that they're going to be more willing to accept these, um, you know, they're more willing to accept Bitcoin because it has an anonymous founder and we don't know where he's from or what government he aligns with or what nation he represents. And it doesn't matter. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's that idea that you can have some of these things kind of be anonymous and for everyone um, and not really attached to these institutions that, uh, you know, have kind of let us down as of late. Yeah, and that's a great transition into the macro landscape and kind of what we're looking at now, as you mentioned, with COVID-19 and how the world has just changed even in a few months. Let's talk a little about how digital assets are kind of set up for that and and kind of the preferences of young people too, growing up and and seeing this and kind of growing up as, you know, you can look at different points in time, whether it's 9-11 and we had the Patriot Act and a lot of things come after that. And you, you can look back in time at different societal shifts, but the preferences and things that are going to change could be with us for a long time. Um, and so when you look at like the first one that comes to mind is just uh, cash. So there's already a, a lot of 
uh, companies that are not accepting cash, the ones that are opening up. And I, I saw a funny tweet the other day that said, who, who's excited to uh, go out and open their wallet and uh, hit the ATM and start uh, touching all that cash out there now? So, you know, th- this kind of sets us up for for this next phase of kind of digital assets. And what's your view there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I think one of the early stories I was reading about COVID um, out of China was that they were like burning all the banknotes that they had coming out of the hospital and out of the public bus system. Interesting. Uh, because, wow. because they didn't even, well, at the time they just, I mean, they still don't know, but they didn't even know how the virus was transmitting. They were just like, forget it. This isn't worth it. Um, but yeah. I mean, I think we've been, we've definitely like payments and cash, like money overall has become increasingly digitized over the years. Um, and not even just through, you know, digital assets, but just, you know, in general, like, I mean, look at all the uh, strides that have been made. I mean, we, first we had PayPal. Now we have, you know, Venmo, um, you know, everybody uses credit cards. Um, I, and by the way, let me, I'll, I'll talk about this later. That's, I, I want to be very uh, explicit that this is specific to the United States. Um, what I'm talking about right now. Um, but we, you know, we, we've already become kind of like this digital payment society, especially with e-commerce. There's no reason you don't even need to swipe your card, right? You just enter your information and hit checkout. Um, but I think specifically, yeah, with, you know, with COVID and the idea of like, you know, this virus spreading through touch, I think that contactless payment is going to be kind of like that next thing that rises up out of this. Um, and only in, you know, whether it be that you can stand, you know, six feet away from somebody and have them scan your barcode um, to pay for something is going to be, I think, kind of that next evolution of that. Um, and I think that there are a lot of, and there's a lot of companies within digital assets that are working kind of on this problem of, um, you know, offering, uh, you know, payments, whether it's through um, digital assets and crypto or through, you know, traditional fiat, but the ability to not swipe a card even um, or open your wallet at all, really. Um, so I think that's kind of like that next step. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting that, yeah, like we don't, I think that cash is, you know, the cash is definitely being, de- uh, used less and less. There's so many, uh, businesses I know just within Los Angeles that don't accept cash at all. Um, uh, it's expensive actually to, uh, hang it's, it's actually more expensive, I think for businesses to like have like cash registers and stuff just because, uh, you know, there's potential loss of threat robbery, um, you know just miscounting it. So, um, I know a lot of businesses have moved away from that. Uh, I do want to say though, that it's, it's great for us kind of in the United States to move away from using cash and go to these, you know, digitized payment methods, but it, uh, we also, we should also consider that if by doing so, we actually cut out a huge number of people in the population who don't have access to anything but cash. Um, and, you know, you still see this uh, kind of outside the United States, especially in developing nations. Um, you know, people can't get bank accounts there um, or the banking system is corrupt. And so they don't want to keep their money there. Uh, so a lot of, um, you know, cash is still king throughout the world. And I think until we have like a really easy solution to trade out cash for, it's going to continue to be, you know, wi- a widely used thing. I do think, though, in you know the United States, we will see this huge push for contactless payments um, coming out of this, uh, pandemic. Interesting. So that would be like with the credit cards that have a little chip where you just, uh, touch, press it against the little credit card machine or or something like Apple pay. Yeah. I mean, probably Apple pay is a better example, but yeah, like 
credit cards have started implementing contactless payment. Um, so like you said, you kind of hold your credit card in front of the machine or do you, you just tap it very lightly versus inserting your chip or swiping it. Um, you know, that's becoming more popular. I think I, again, I think we will get to a point though, where it will truly be like no contact. Uh, I don't know if you've been to a grocery store lately, but now they all have these like plexiglass screens between you and the, you know, the checkout right. person. And you know, that, 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 that separation, I mean, and the credit card readers on the other side, but, uh, you know, I think we're going to get, even get to a point where, um, like the Amazon, uh, I think it's Amazon. They have a, that store where you can just go in and pick up your items. You scan your membership on the way and they just charge you for what you took. Um, you know, I won't be surprised if we get to, you know, more systems like that, uh, where it's truly like, you're not touching anything. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're really in this kind of like digitized space. Yeah, it's, I was reading an article talking about the winners and different companies and sectors coming out of this. And mm-hmm. as you mentioned, um, plexiglass makers, <laughs> <laughs> those type of companies are doing a huge amount of business. And when you look at, the, obviously, the cliche is Zoom. Uh, I saw a really funny uh, little piece about apparently there was a Zoom ticker. I forget what the exact ticker was, but people had thought that that was the, the Zoom a web conferencing company mm. and the, this other zoom stock got uh got bid up to like went to like thousands of percent or something like that and then you know that just shows kind of the retail flows coming through robin hood or coming through some of these other brokers a lot of people are sitting at home trying to trying to find the next uh, big thing so i thought that was kind of funny but um you know so that kind of transitions to the last topic here i had which was stable coins so you would mentioned just a minute ago uh people around the world even you can look at uh, venmo which is i think just u.s based um Mm -hmm. you look at um was it alipay and um some some of the other things in china and that things that are more global um there's been some talk about how stable coins are have a really interesting use case because people in other countries, let's say if they can't get access to dollars, they could get access to a stable coin, which is backed by uh, the U S dollar or maybe backed by something else. Um, And so let's talk a little bit about kind of that next phase, Uh, you know, Bitcoin versus stable coins and people around the world uh, getting access to, to both of those. Yeah, I mean, well, so, okay, the biggest hurdle to any of these technologies, by the way, is like an internet connection. So I do want to preface by saying like outside mm-hmm. the US, if you're somewhere, if you're in a rural village in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, you probably don't have an internet connection for you to, uh, you know, even get access to these things. So I think, by the way, that's like the first thing we got to fix. Um, but yeah, there's some mesh network, uh, companies that are doing some mesh network technology where, um, you know, there's no internet access, but they'll be able to kind of like relay small amounts of data, almost like a a very large Bluetooth type of technology. I'd like to uh, describe it as, but yeah, go ahead. Keep going there. Yeah. So, um, no, I definitely think that, um, you know, stable coins, uh, you know, the idea and the idea of them, you know, being pegged to these real world assets um, is super interesting. And it's obviously caught the interest of a lot of central banks. Um, I don't think a week goes by right now that I don't see a headline of, uh, you know, this cent- this country's central bank is looking at, um, you know, issuing a digital currency. This, sh- this central bank has conducted a test to issue a digital currency. So governments around the world are thinking about it and, you know, realizing that this is kind of the next phase of how money is going to be issued. 
And I think it's definitely been ushered in by the digital asset space creating their own representations of the U.S. dollar and using it mostly for trading purposes. But I do think it does have, um, you know, it does have the benefits of having that kind of 24-7 transferability, right? So today, if you want to send U.S. dollars or if you want to send money to somebody, uh, you know, you might be only able to do so within banking hours um, if they, you know, need that money to then make a payment or, um, you know, to meet to meet some obligation, uh, the stablecoins can kind of fix that because you can send them any hour of the day. You can send them on weekends. You can send them late at night, um, and you don't have to normally wait. You know, three hours for a wire transfer to go through just domestically, or three days if it's an international wire because it gets you know binged between six different banks. Um, but stablecoin transactions, you know, can settle. Most of them are on Ethereum. They can settle within a few minutes, uh, which is a huge improvement over the current system. So I think just in the idea of having um, more access uh, to capital that can be easily transferred is like kind of the biggest benefit um, of of stable coins right now. Um, I think the biggest issue that a lot of countries are grappling with, um, especially, and this was mostly spurred by kind of Libra's announcement that they were going to issue a stable coin last year, is uh, how do you regulate them from the perspective of making sure that they aren't used for illicit purposes? uh, And then also... How do you ensure that uh, uh, these countries especially are able to kind of still have a grasp on their monetary policy while still, uh, you know, while still allowing kind of the digitization of money to flourish? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I know we've seen um, the Fed, the Federal Reserve here in the U.S. and other central banks talking about how they might well, how they're definitely looking into kind of blockchain technology, at least back into 2015, 2016. So, and that word is kind of like a loaded term and maybe it's not very useful, but talking about doing some type of technology where it's, uh, you know, they're backing, let's say the dollar and they're calling it, um, you know, their their digital currency or, or whatever. And the benefits, as we talked about, is maybe there's a little more transparency. Maybe uh, the it, the transaction mechanism will be a huge upgrade from ACH or SWIFT or mm-hmm. those type of things. Um, but as you mentioned, on the other side, it's the regulation. It's, you know, being able to have them have control over it and all those other things. So do you see this playing out where there's it's going to be bifurcated, where you have a Coinbase has their stable coin, Gemini, and then you have something like Tether, and then you have um, maybe even like central banks, uh, and and then maybe even um, you know as opposed to something like a consortium like Libra or any other consortium where it's like more of like a winner take all. Yeah, I mean, I think we're still going to probably continue to have this bifurcated system. Like, I don't see us having one global currency, which is I know what Libra originally um, pitched, just because every country, no. every country and every region of the world has a very distinct economy and distinct uh, goals. And so they really do need to have the ability to control their own currency. Like that is really one of the biggest things that like a central bank has the power to do. Um, And they need that because depending on the condition of the country, they need to be able to, you know, tighten or loosen uh, the flow of funds. Um, So I I do think we are going to end up in a world where we have, um, you know, kind of a blended approach. You might see, you know, uh, you, you might end up with a digital euro, right? That covers all of Europe. You know, we still see that, you know, system continue to work. Um, or you could just see every single country just issue their own currency pegged to their, their dollar. Um, 
that just is, you know, an electronic representation of that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the, uh, I think that, um, you know, what I'm kind of watching and that what I'm kind of concerned about right now is that, you know, there's a lot of countries that are trying to kind of understand how stable coins can fit into uh, their monetary policy and what their benefits are. And I still think that's a long way off. Um, the G20, though, they have like a financial group, a financial, uh, um, what do you call it, like advisory group. And they recently kind of advised them that, you know, you need to take stable coins seriously. Um, but you also need to be regulating them because the impact of letting them just be issued and sent all around the world will have um, an, a large impact on, you know, your country's, mo- uh, your country's monetary base. So I think countries are starting to take it more seriously because of that. And I, um, you know, I don't really know what that means for the stable coins that have been issued by, you know, like you said, Coinbase or Tether, um, just because they've kind of acted outside of that system uh, for so long. Um, and there really were, they, and, and, and stable coins also, they weren't really created to replace cash and be an actual US dollar. They were created because uh, Bitcoin trades 24-7 and they needed, uh, you know, a stable asset to peg to Bitcoin. Uh, for trading purposes. So, you know, that that's why that came about. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't because, uh, you know, these exchanges wanted to necessarily create uh, a new form of cash for people to send back and forth. It's kind of developed into that now that we've seen the benefits, but that wasn't really the original intent. Yeah. And what I think a lot of people are trying to do, especially as new people enter this whole digital asset space from other industries is be able to communicate some of these concepts and you've done a great job on the, on the podcast here, but especially with uh, the newsletter that you help write is being able to bring similar terms that people understand. So like one way I heard stable coins described is almost like a money market where it's yeah, like a, like a, you know, $1, they used to call it breaking the buck. And back in 08, I think they had mm-hmm. the one or two funds do that. And then the, some of those reforms have been, um, have been fixed, but you know, it's very similar where you you know, your money's in a money market fund at let's say Fidelity or Vanguard and you move it into securities or mutual funds. So it's very similar. Um, and then you could even talk about like Venmo it, it being kind of like that, as we mentioned earlier, where the money is sitting there, you know, in the Venmo account and it can be moved between Venmo. But once you go to the outside system, it goes to ACH and it's actually through the banking system there. So lastly, you know, why don't you tell people where to find uh, more of your work and a little bit about um, uh, some of the content that you put out? Sure. Uh, So as Ryan kind of alluded to, um, I help write uh, the ARCA's weekly newsletter. It's called That's Our Two Satoshis. And um, basically it's kind of a uh, market trading recap on the weekend digital assets. We also touch on the macro picture as well. Um, if you want, you can sign up for that on our website, which, I, as I said, is um, <clears throat> ar.ca. Um, we also publish kind of, uh, you know, other information about our research, our process from time to time. Uh, so welcome you to visit, sign up, stay in touch. That's great. Well, thanks, Katie, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. 
You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.